I want to extend my welcome again to Grace Ann Arbor. Uh, my name is John Compton. Uh, if I look uh, new or unfamiliar, um, it's because I'm fairly new. Uh, my family and I, we moved here a little over a month ago, and we're, we're kind of settling in. And my role here as Grace, at Grace is as the pastor of mission. And what that means is a couple things. Is one, on the, the day-to-day side of things, is, is my job in many ways, is to, to think of and implement ways that the people of grace would be better equipped and empowered to take the good news of Jesus out into the world, to their coworkers, their neighbors, their friends, to the community. And the bigger picture of this is that I'm also a, what's called a church planting resident, that I'll be here to learn and lead and contribute, but ultimately to be sent out to start a new church that, again, would be about taking the gospel, the good news of Jesus, to those who need it, to the hurting, to the hopeless, and the forgotten. And this is what drives me. Um, In the words of one writer, he says, the church is the only organization who exists for the benefit of those who are not yet its members. And so that's why I'm really excited about our series that we're going to, through right now, the Be the Church series. Uh, this is our second week, and it's really focusing in on this missional nature of the church, of what we are called to go and be. So my hope is that for those of us who um, are, are, are members here, uh, are, have, have said that this is our church, uh, I hope we would have our eyes opened to how God has called us and empowered us to do this work, to care for those who are not yet its members. And if you're here today and you're just kind of exploring Christianity and you're not sure this is for you, my hope that for you, you would see what the church is called to be, what it's supposed to be. Because if you're like me, you've seen the church fail in so many ways has maybe failed and hurt you. Maybe your experience of Christians is that they are some of the most self-absorbed people you've ever met, that they only seem to seek out what's good for them, what's in it for them. And so my hope is that here at Grace that you would experience something different through the life of this church and that ultimately you would see that this difference emanates from Jesus himself. And I hope you'll see that as we look at this text in Matthew's gospel. This is from Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 11. You can follow along on the screen. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus goes, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Will you pray with me? Good and almighty God, we thank you for this story. We thank you for your power, and we thank you for people like Peter, 
who in this moment seems to get it so right, and we know that he'll often get it so wrong. And yet you choose to love him and to work through him. And so we know that no matter how often we get it right or how often we get it wrong, you will continue to love us and work through us to be your rocks in this world. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I need to begin by making a a slightly uh, embarrassing confession. Um, And it's embarrassing because of who is here in the room. Uh, When my family and I, when we were considering moving to Ann Arbor, you know, we knew obviously that the University of Michigan is here in Ann Arbor. Uh, And we knew that the University of Michigan had a medical school. What we didn't know is just how big and far-reaching the medical school and the medical community is. Uh, In fact, can you do me a favor? If you're in med school or have been in med school or a resident or some way tied to the medical field, can you raise your hand? Maybe it's not as bad as I think. Oh, this is better than the 9.30 service. So maybe this won't be too bad. So my embarrassing thing is that my wife and I, we have gotten hooked on the uh, unfortunate television medical drama, Grey's Anatomy. And uh, it's, it's, if you don't know what it is, it, it's, it's, it's a medical drama that should say enough. And it's just one of those things that just ropes you in. And I remember when it first came out thinking, I'm not going to watch that. It's just a waste of time. It's very predictable. And it is. It's all of those things. But it has this unique ability to just kind of suck you in. And it started with my wife. See, she had gotten in the habit of going to the gym and just the way her schedule was with our kids. The best time for her was in the afternoon. And so she would run on the treadmill and have her TVs in front of her. And, you know, it's the afternoon. So there weren't many options. It was either, you know, some Lifetime movie or Grey's Anatomy. And, you know, you'd probably choose Grey's Anatomy. But, and, you know, she would run for a little bit and just get sucked in and want to watch the end. And so she discovered, of course, that it's on Netflix. And she's like, well, I'll just watch it when I'm, like, folding laundry. Or I'll watch it when, you know, John, I have a, a meeting somewhere. And it was just to be her show. But then I would catch glimpses of it. I would come home from meetings and see this dramatic end to his episode, and I needed to know what happened next. And so here we are. Now I get really mad if she tries to watch an episode without me. And it's embarrassing, and if you're in the medical community, maybe I've lost some credibility, and I'll, I'll deal with that. Um, but truthfully, you know, there are some moments where it does show some profound truth about human nature. In one of these episodes, one of the, the, the doctors was, um, had this epiphany. She was really bright, Dr. Yang, for those who watch it, uh, was sitting there, and she had this realization that no matter how good she got, no matter how much better she became, no matter the advancement in medical tools and procedures, her patients were going to die. And this is something that we, she knew, but in that moment, she knew in her heart. And we all have to deal with that, with death. There are times that we, we kind of know that death is out there, but then there are moments it sinks into our hearts. And it seems at times that death is the greatest power in the world. And we spend most of our lives raging against our mortality. We consume ourselves in work. We get consumed in relationships. We let our passions and desires overtake us, hoping somehow to overcome this power. And not only that, in the world at large, 
we see that almost all evil and injustice are based on the power of death. Dictators who rule in various countries and nations, they do it because they wield this power. They say, if you rise up against us, we will cut you down. People are hesitant to join various fights against injustice, ultimately because they become afraid of death and suffering. But what we see in our text is that Jesus offers a greater power, that he himself is stronger than death, and he offers this power to his people. So I want us to look at the reality of Jesus' power, Jesus' power in his people, and then his people in his power. You see, the reality of Jesus' power is that it is one of love and justice. This point in Matthew's gospel is kind of a turning point. This is the first time that Jesus is really revealing to his disciples who he really is. And part of this revelation is he is saying who he is not. Right? Well, they, they, they come and Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they tell him, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now, they knew right away he's not John the Baptist. That was just some kind of crazy rumor because he was sort of similar in some ways. But this idea that Jesus is Elijah again or Jeremiah again kind of makes sense because in some ways, Jesus is similar to these two men. But thankfully, he's not like, exactly like them. You see, Jeremiah and Elijah, they were Old Testament prophets, and like almost all Old Testament prophets, their call was to bring the people of God back to God's ways. And they did so in very different means. And the best way I can sum them up is, is, is honestly in some church signs that I've seen that you maybe you've seen. Um, there was this one church uh, that we drove by. We used to live in upstate New York. And it was like Jeremiah. See, Jeremiah is like a bleeding heart. And he's just like kind of pleading people really nicely. Like, please come back to God. Please turn your ways. Please do something different. And as you can imagine, his pleading doesn't work. He means well. He loves the people. He truly does. His, he's heartfelt, really sincere, but it's ineffective. And it reminds me of this church sign in New York that we would drive by on our way to the local library. And they would plead with people to come in, and they meant well, but it was so ineffective. Right? They would have signs like this. In the summertime when it was hot, they'd be like, come on inside. The sanctuary's been prayer conditioned. Yeah. It's bad. And having trouble connecting with God? Have you tried his knee mail? And just, you know, you just feel bad for him. Like, that is not going to work. And so, but thankfully, Jesus' love and power is not like Jeremiah. Nor is it like Elijah. You see, Elijah did the total opposite. Elijah just destroyed his enemies. Destroyed and had killed the false prophets of Israel. And he, he kind of reminds me of this church that I drive by out here, that they have on their sign this quote from Romans that says, none is righteous, no one. This kind of ruthless, intense quote. But Jesus isn't just that ruthless. See, I wish this church would include another verse in Romans right underneath it that says, but God justifies the ungodly. You see, Jesus 
is the Christ, the son of the living God. Christ isn't his last name, that is his title. He is God's anointed one, promised to come into the world and make what is unrighteous, righteous, to make the people who are unjust into instruments of righteousness. See, Jesus comes loving like Jeremiah, and he comes seeking to bring justice, but he doesn't come and destroy his enemies, he destroys the enemy of sin and death itself. And he does this by taking on in his own body their destruction. And in his death, he destroys death. So that in his life, people would be free to be empowered to do righteousness in this world. Jesus' power is of justice and love. It's exactly what we need it to be. It's the love that never gives up on us always hunts us down, but it's also effective. It changes us because he is the just one that makes us from unrighteous to those who do justice. And he promises to give his power to his people. You see, Jesus' power is stronger than the weaknesses of his people. You see, in our text, Peter gets the right answer, right? And Jesus responds and tells him, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. You see that phrase, the gates of Hades, it's just an idiom for death. Jesus is saying, my power, my stronger-than-death power will be alive and active in those to whom it's been revealed that I am the Christ the son of the living God. And this means a couple things about us and God's power. One is that our power is a derivative power, right? We can't live like off the grid and muster up our own power, right? We have a derivative power. We are, I like to think of it, we are like diamonds, right? A diamond in the world of darkness is of no value. It's just another rock. But a diamond brought into the light shines brilliantly. And with God, he is not only our light in whom we shine, he is the diamond maker. He is the one that shapes us and molds us and cuts us and refines us so that we shine brilliantly in this world. And this is true regardless of our weakness and failures. I love this passage because you see it here. Peter gets it so right. He is commended so high. And literally the next paragraph, Peter tries to correct Jesus, and Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. Right? A little bit later, Peter will deny Jesus three times as Jesus is on trial on his way to the cross. And yet, God continues to use him and love him, and he does become a rock upon the early church's belt because Jesus' power is stronger than his people's weaknesses. So what is his people, what do his people do in his power? His people in his power live out dreams of justice and love in the face of great opposition. We see this again and again that they are abled and empowered to live out dreams of justice of love 
in the face of great opposition. If I were to put a nice big bow on this whole thing, this is what I would say. The church is an unstoppable force with the living God for the good of the world because of the gospel. Since Jesus died and defeated death in his death and rose to new life and offers to come alongside and empower his people, the church is an unstoppable force for good with God. This is what the church always has been. This is what the church is called to be today and to be until the day when Christ returns. In the early days of the church, their greatest opposition was the Roman Empire, the mighty Roman Empire. Caesar was viewed as divine, as God in the flesh. We were to worship and bow down to him. And yet, this small group of people stood up against him. The Roman Empire, who kept the peace of Rome by brutally and ruthlessly eliminating their opponents, this small group of people stood up to Caesar and said, you are not Lord, Jesus is Lord. And it was because these people were not afraid of death. They knew of a power mightier than death. And so today, a couple thousand years later, when we hear the word Caesar, we don't think of power. Right? What do we think of? Caesar's palace? Little Caesar's pizza? That salad that I never get? Um, a little dog, right? I don't know why they always end up being called Caesar, right? We don't have an image of power because the power of Jesus worked through his people in the face of great opposition. Centuries uh, after Caesar, the early church had another great opponent. The plagues that swept through uh, the European area that devastated huge uh, amounts of people. Right, they could have done what everybody else did, which was just flee the sick and the dying. But they didn't because they weren't afraid of death. And so they moved towards those who were sick and dying and brought healing in their care as they fed them and gave them water to drink. And yes, some of them died by taking on the sickness of others. But many lived because they were not afraid of death. They were empowered by the living God. And the church has continued to do this throughout the ages. At one point, the church saw that the sick and the dying weren't being cared for, so they created places of hospitality, which we know today of as places of hospice care. And hospitals were started by the church because they were not afraid of death. They knew of a power stronger than death. The church raised up leaders like William Wilberforce, to put an end to the African slave trade. The church raised up leaders to fight in the civil rights movement. Now I know as you hear those, if you're like me and you're a little bit cynical, right, you'll remind yourself, of like, wait, weren't there a bunch of people using Bibles to justify slavery, to justify racism? And you're right. The church has done that, and we need to own that and recognize that. But the good news of this is that Jesus' power is stronger than the weakness of his people. You see, our work today isn't just built on the rocks of the church that's gone before us. We're not built on the strengths and the weaknesses of the church of the past. We are built on Jesus Christ himself. The one who looked at the world marred by sin and evil 
And because he loved the world and he loved us, he entered into it. And he allowed himself to be ruthlessly destroyed. And in his death, he defeated death. So that in his new life, people would be set free to live out dreams of justice and love, to be an unstoppable force for good in this world. You see, today, what this means for us is that our task is, yes, on one hand, we do look back to the past. We stand on the shoulders of the giants who have gone before us. But then we also look forward. We look ahead to the day when Christ returns. Right, That day when Christ returns and all things are made new. When every tear will be wiped away. When death will be no more. When sickness and pain and suffering will cease. We look forward to that day and we grab a hold of it and we pull it into the present moment as the people of God, as part of the unstoppable force for the good of the world. And so my challenge for all of us is to do a couple things. First, is to look unblinkingly at the face of evil in the world. Right? Look around the world and see the 40 million who are enslaved throughout the world. See the millions that are being trafficked for sex throughout the world that are underage children. Look at the 65 million refugees scattered throughout the globe. Look at the political landscape where we see people with massive power, with the ability to, to, to use weapons of massive destruction. Look closer to home. Look at the gap between the rich and the poor continuing to get wider and wider. Look at places like Virginia, where we see that racism is alive and well. Look at the cities that have been devastated as the wealthy made foolish decisions that the poor have to bear on their backs. Look at the opiate addiction, uh, epidemic that is ruining so many lives. Look at the mass incarceration that's affecting so many lives throughout our country. Look at the failing schools in many of our neighborhoods. And when, that's just what we can see. There's so much that we don't see. The broken marriages, the divided neighbors, the ruined relationships. Look at them unblinkingly. And maybe you're saying right now that you, you can't lift your head. That something's going on in your life that's too great of a burden for you to bear. That you just can't lift your head. I'll say to you what I'll say to everybody. The simple reality. Do not be afraid. Jesus conquered the grave. God is the victor. God is making all things new. God will win. So, for us, as you sit here, imagine that God has used his church in the first century to stand up against Rome, has used his church in the 19th century to stand up against slavery. What is God calling the 21st century church to be in this world? What could God be calling you to be? What is God calling you to be? And perhaps it's things in your own neighborhood, in your current place of work, and perhaps God is calling you to something else. To partner with him 
and this unstoppable force for good in this world. Will you go where he calls you? Let us pray. God, we thank you for your mighty power that is far greater than what we could imagine and yet is so gentle towards us that however we are, you know us so deeply. You know what we need. And so we ask that your spirit would provide that to us in our lives right now, that we would know of your love, that we would know of your power, that we would be free from fear to live lives of love and justice in this world. Amen.